Welcome to How Do You Engineer, your hacked DIY engineering podcast. I'm a host, Peter Martin. I'm a host, Abby Desjardins. And I'm a host, Simon Whitmel. And this week we're talking to Adriana about hackathons and all things maker. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into that, we, uh, we've been having some wacky weather here. Mm-hmm. It's cold and gross. And uh, so I think this week we need to engineer some weather control. Yeah. And before we get started, I'm going to apologize. I think I've got a slight allergy slash cold, so I might sniffle and sneeze in the middle of the podcast. Mm-hmm. You should blame the weather. Yeah, yes. I will. It's all just sure. terrible weather. Yeah. So what, what what's going to control the weather? We need heat. Heat. It's all heat flow, right? Heat right now. Yeah. Where we are. Well, even like when it's when it's too hot in one place, it's because it's cold somewhere else. You need to like shunt heat from one place to another. Oh, okay. Hmm. Or like move... I guess you wouldn't even need to like shunt heat. You could create, if you could like heat up one place, so you created air currents where you wanted, right? Mm-hmm. We're not going to talk about precipitation or any of the other elements of, of weather. Well, I mean, heat's, I guess, the first one. Sure. Let's, like, like, let's take it one step at okay. a time. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so satellites with giant mirrors to reflect the sun on them. That was, was that, that came up with the like snow removal episode. Yeah. Did it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, we, man. We were, we were afraid we were going to like murder a whole bunch of people. I have one idea. Like there was space lasers. Barbecuing cows and yeah. fields. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you have a diffuse enough um, filter or like some kind of lens, you could probably work somehow. You need it, to have a really high orbit satellite. What if like, that's a lot, like it's really expensive to put things into like orbit. Well, not anymore. Now that SpaceX has landed their Falcon 9, it's all super cheap. Yeah, but it's super cheap. <laughs> <laughs> it's only like $200 million now. What, what if we like drilled down into like the core of the earth and then put like doors on it so you could open them? <laughs> so you could like open it and you'd open ones at different places on the earth when you wanted to like heat up certain places and then you'd close it when you wanted to cool it down. Doors to hell. Yeah, exactly. So who would be in charge of these doors? They're not like personal in your house going into your basement. That would be awesome, actually, for like house, like household heating. I, I feel, I think that would probably be prohibitively expensive for not really home. child safe either. <laughs> <laughs> the baby gate fell off the hell gate. <laughs> um, okay, no, like you'd want it had to be like centrally controlled because you'd want to be controlling like global weather patterns by heating up certain places. Yeah, it's not going to affect climate if there's a tiny door in your basement. That no, I'm thinking, I'm thinking like a big hole. Yeah, like you gotta you gotta release a lot of heat. Okay. Like you're essentially creating little mini volcanoes, but instead of like they're not erupting all the time, they're just releasing plumes of heat. What about like artificial greenhouse effect style like thing where you put like a big umbrella over top of a certain region, keep the heat in? Like glass domes everywhere. Yeah. So you're saying we should just like live inside a big dome? I don't know. That would solve a <laughs> lot of weather problems. That would. That would solve almost everything. Yeah, but I mean, then you got a structural issue of now you got to figure out how to build a giant dome. Yeah, fair. Um, so we didn't like the hole in the ground. Um, well, okay. I feel like the sun is the most effective way to heat a part of the earth. That's sort of its job. Yeah. Okay. So the problem is, is that we're not getting enough sun because it's winter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because so. of the axis of rotation. Okay. So change that. Or you heat the oceans, like the El Nino effect, and that changes the climate quite significantly to make things Very hotter or colder. I mean, if you could, if you could get if you could redirect like ocean currents, you could heat up yeah. different parts of the world, yeah, and also cool down different parts of the world. They could pull like cold water down from somewhere else. So you need to have your doors at the bottom of the ocean. 
potentially. I don't. I have no idea how any of this works. Well, you, you <laughs> need to drain the ocean. You deep. need to be able to like redirect ocean currents so that you can because the whole the whole thing is like the Gulf Stream takes water from the center, like from the equator, up specifically to the space around like Great Britain and that, and that's mm-hmm. why it's so much warmer in Great Britain than the same northern. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they they said if the Gulf Stream shifted, then Scotland would be the same temperature as like it'd be like it's, up, it's yeah it's up yeah. near like the great white north yeah it's mm. alaska the, basically, the parts yeah. of the parts of canada where most people find it far too cold well yeah there aren't there aren't very many people no. to find it cold either yeah um no yeah so redirecting ocean currents would certainly do it mm-hmm. but i don't know if you're gonna put like big bumps under underwater or mm-hmm. like big fans big underwater fans just like blow the ocean water different directions it's like, also a pretty significant impact on like wildlife that. Oh, I'm sure. Any, all of those currents. <laughs> I think we should. I think we should probably start with pretty much anything we're going to do with this is going to like completely destroy ecosystems the world over. Okay. I mean, you, there's going to be some kind of balance effect. Like, I'm, I'm sure that while we find it very cold here in Australia at this point, it's probably not the same type of issue. So, I mean, if you're just shunting heat to different parts of the Earth and then using like heat tubes or some kind of sort of like. Uh, I don't know, heat pipes or superconductors. Yeah. Just like connect heat all exchangers. of the earth a big, like <laughs> continental heat exchangers. And then, uh, I don't know, you've got, uh, some sort of mechanism on top of that to take care of precipitation. Okay. Well, precipitation, the big thing with like where rain falls is all like mountains and stuff. Yeah. So you just need like removable baffles that pop up various places around the world. So you get like cold, like humid, wa- humid air moving through. You just have like a big wall that pops up and causes it to rain. Mm hmm. Yeah, because if you take somewhere that's very hot and figure out some way of taking that heat and converting it to um, a source of energy that can create condensation, and then you take that those clouds and you shunt them somewhere else, and then you take the the heat and that cools off that area, but then it can also be used to generate, I don't know, like just shunting stuff around, you're moving precipitation around, moving heat around. Yeah, well, I was always saying, like, if you could create heat in a specific place, although they'll heat up that place locally, it also creates like an updraft that pulls in air from all around. Mm -hmm. So if you got somewhere that's like somewhere near water, like not, it doesn't have to be really close, but like if you got like a desert and you have ocean all around it, if you can create a massive updraft in the desert, it's going to pull air in from all directions, mm-hmm. which would include from places where it's like more damp. And then if you can like baffle that and force the air, because as the air goes up, it's then going to cool down and it'll precipitate. Mm-hmm. So I'm still voting for like the holes into the center of the earth. I think it's not as crazy as it sounds. Although I actually, I want, <laughs> I want to revisit something Abby said about the seasons, how we, how we should fix the tilt of the earth. Yeah. So we gotta build like, you build like a giant tower at the North Pole and the South Pole, and you put big rockets on it that always point in opposition to the tilt of the Earth. I think we we could do the math. I don't. It would take an absurd amount of power, but you could do it. To what do we? Why, why? If you fix the you fix the Earth's axial tilt, and then yeah. you don't have seasons anymore. Yep. And then everything dies. Well, yeah, no. I feel I feel like we think this may have already happened in the past. <laughs> well, no, okay. places like California don't have seasons and not everything dies. Fair. Like but the center of the the places of the equator basically have no seasons. Yeah. They have one. Well, I guess well, they, they have, have rainy hot seasons and then like yeah. monsoon. Okay. It does yeah, cause issues because for instance like there are a lot of um ecosystems that rely on insects to die in the winter and come back in the spring and mm. stuff oh, like that. That's true. That'd be awful. Otherwise all the birds are going to get fat and then they're going to eat and it throws a lot of 
delicate balance out of balance. Okay. So, we, so, we, so we have to deal with like micro control then. Cause like macro control of yeah. like adjusting seasons is just going to be the, 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 the side effects are bad. Mm-hmm. Do you read what if the, from, uh, XKCD? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like this is along the lines of many of his experiments where well he did just, re- he did a really cool one was like what if the earth was like rotated in the other direction like if it, if, if the north and south pole were on the equator and it rotated sideways and he mm-hmm. did a whole new map of that that yeah. was really cool oh, weird it was it was cool because it meant like parts of of antarctica were like temperate and then places that used to be the equator are now north and south pole and there's like new deserts and all kinds of cool stuff mm-hmm. so yeah no the effects the secondary effects would be ridiculous <laughs> Um, okay. So we need micro control then. Um, would you be happy if there was a place you could go to that was warmer? I mean, I think at a micro scale, we've sort of solved that with wave pools and. Oh, oh okay. Hmm. Uh, Pete's, so if we Pete's had more efficient ways to. To go places yeah, yeah, that were warm. Maybe sort of along the lines of your glass dome, you could. <laughs> you could Just go really home big to indoor a big, water parks. You know, indoor neighborhood that. Well, isn't there, there's one in, in, is it Japan that has like this ginormous building that's like a whole beach and they got like a sky painted on the inside of the roof mm-hmm. and it's, it's like the world's biggest indoor beach. Yeah. In Dubai, awesome. they have ski hills like that too. Indoor yeah. ski yeah. hills, indoor mm-hmm. beach. So, okay. All right. So the, the, you scale it down from your giant dome. Cause like the idea of just putting a whole dome over everything is just going to be, you just get snow load on the dome and everything be I mean, horrible. There was something I saw a couple of days ago. I don't, I have no idea what it was. I didn't read the context, but it had something to do with, lowering the altitude of central park and then building almost a wall around it so that you could have like hills and valleys and different ecosystems inside central park. Okay. They wanted to reduce like the overall height of it by like a thousand feet or something, man, that'd be crazy. So it's, you're just talking basically like terraforming. Yeah. It'd be inside instead of outside. Then you put a lid on it and you can control the temperature and the climate. Hmm. Actually, that'd be cool because then you could do it if you wanted to. You could do it like underground. You could dig down and make like into a cave system or something and build yourself like a beach paradise in mm-hmm. some giant cave. I mean, unfortunately, the way that the climate's headed, we might eventually need to have big greenhouses and zones like that that are controlled because otherwise everything dies. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that downer, Pete. <laughs> I was just talking about how it's like mucky outside. Yeah. And then everything dies. Yes. Um, all right. So let's, let's, let's approach this a little more practically then we want to create, do, is it, do you want to like an adjustable indoor space or is it like, are these custom made? Like you're going to be, or is it like, is, is it like you have the indoor ski hills that it's always winter all year round? Or is it like you have a select a thing, you have an event center where you could be like, I want it to be fall. Hmm. You could have different. Yeah. You could have, I think you'd have different ones, sort of like, uh, hunger games. <laughs> <laughs> I love, got- I love the eye roll that went along with that. <laughs> that was fantastic. My dad was just telling me yesterday that he watched Hunger Games. He watched oh, yeah. the the Mockingjay one, but didn't realize it was the third one in the series. Oh boy, and that was, must have been confused. <laughs> He's like, I don't think I'll watch another one. I'm like, okay, okay, That's fair. Practic- but yeah, I mean, but getting back to reality. Practically, it would make sense if we're talking about we want the extremes. Then you build like two build two rooms side by side, and you just shunt heat from one to the other, mm. and one becomes your like winter your winter place and the other one becomes your summer place. Yeah. It's and our, it's our previous idea, but in miniature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, there's no point in doing this like on the surface of the earth because it's just going to get messed with by sun and day and night yeah. and seasons. So being like deep underground would actually be the best place for it. Cause you have a consistent outside temperature and you have a huge amount of like thermal mass around you. You can shunt heat into the rock mm-hmm. and it'll absorb or give up a fair bit of heat without changing any like, ambient temperature so there are lots solution. of old abandoned mines you could use 
Yeah. yeah. Actually, that's a good use for all the, like, yeah, big empty spaces underground. Right now they just fill them with nuclear waste. You could do other stuff like this. Yeah. Then you could use the nuclear waste as a heat source. You could do both. Yeah. yeah. It's a giant RTG. Yeah. That's, that's not a terrible <laughs> idea at all. Yeah. Um, okay. No, I like that. <laughs> not, not so much the nuclear waste part, but I think it's actually a pretty cool idea if we built it like deep underground. So you have a really good thermal mass and then you just have really good heat exchangers that shunt heat from one room to the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're all just going to become mole people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. We all become mobile people and everything dies. Perfect. <laughs> well, no, actually that's, if we all move underground, then you have all of the surface, like where we're building buildings and crud on the surface, you can replace it all with like farming and plants and things. And that mm-hmm. fixes a whole bunch of environmental problems anyway. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you can build nicer places to be underground and then leave the surface of the earth for things that need it, like animals and plants. Yeah. I think that's sufficiently absurd for our solution. That seems to be our the, the the goal of this is always to come up with the most absurd, great solution. Yeah, so I think I'm, that's good. I was just wondering because there are parts of Iceland, for instance, where they use geothermal to heat everything because there's so much of it. Like they heat the sidewalks in the wintertime yeah. using geothermal energy. And they grow bananas. Yeah. If you get to a certain depth, is it just like always a moderate temperature? I think so. Mm-hmm. It would just it cool. would just be a different depth depending on where you are and how far down you are before you hit like magma. Yeah. yeah. Like in Iceland, it's at the surface, but here you probably have to go down a fair ways. Yeah. But anywhere you're at, you're going to end up with a fairly good, like once you get all the thermal mass of the, of the ground, you can use it for mm-hmm. like, it's the whole idea behind like hydronics. My, yeah. uh, my parents are building a place up North and they're using hydronics. They're just pumping water out of the mm-hmm. groundwater reservoir to heat the house in the winter and cool it in the summer. Yeah. It works better. Like you said, it works better in different specific places and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's neat. Yeah. No, but anywhere where you can tap into like the thermal mass of the ground to control temperature. Mm-hmm. It, you can do it anywhere that you can get at the groundwater. Cool. All right. I like it. Me too. So this week, well, and every week right now, we're sponsored by Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa yeah. is a company that makes uh, educational tools for engineering programs and universities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, their focus is on mechatronics and control systems. And uh, this week, Kwanzaa taught me that there is a Fleming's right-hand rule and a Fleming's left-hand rule, and they do different things. And if you mix them up, you can't do the same calculations. Nope. You end up with things going the wrong directions and negatives and everything's horrible. I can't remember which one's which. I think the right-hand rule <laughs> is force as a result of current going through a magnetic field. And left-hand rule is current as a result of a Induction. conductor moving through a magnetic field. Yeah. And they both involve pointing in the direction of the field and sticking your middle finger in the direction of current flow. Mm-hmm. And I think the last one is motion or force. Is a thumb. Yeah. Yep. So that's what I learned today. Right hand rule also applies to vectors and robotics. No, you're just confusing me even more. Yeah. Yeah. There's too many like right and left hand rules. I know. It's weird. And it's not, it's pointing with a different finger too, which makes it even more complicated. Man, <laughs> I thought I had this all figured out. <laughs> There's so many hand rules. Well, I blame Fleming and couldn't just like have one hand worth of rules. Yeah. yeah. It's weird that we don't have other body parts of rules like right knee rule. Okay, so your heel points in the direction of force, and your toes point in the direction of current flow, and then you're just kneeing the magnetic field. Yes. Well, there's, right. I think there was something that somebody was telling me where, like I said, with the the robotics thing, if you hold your hand a certain way, you get those like the coordinate system that you want to use. But he had something to do with it was very similar. But it was like if you do a certain thing, your elbow points in a certain direction, and you kind of go like this. Or, I don't know. It was if you weird. do the hokey weird. pokey, you could yeah. figure out what direction your force is going. Yeah, I don't know. There's different ways of doing it. 
Okay, I think we've babbled on for <laughs> long enough. Let's, that's uh, what we learned. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Quonsar. <laughs> um, so let's get to, uh, let's get to something that people want to hear about. You're here to talk to us about, well, eventually talk to us about hackathons and what goes on with that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, let's travel back in time and let's, how about you tell us, uh, where you got, how you got into engineering and what sort of engineering you got into originally? Sure. So uh, it's been a while since I've been out of school. Um, I did my undergrad at uh, the University of Toronto in mechanical and industrial, well, at that time, mechanical engineering. And then I did an MEng in mechanical and industrial engineering. Hmm. Um, but since then, um, I've mostly been working in information technology and in uh, university technology commercialization and also uh, working in university administration as well. So it's been a while since I've been back to my engineering or been doing engineering. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, a number of years ago, I did some work at the University of Toronto with uh, Professor uh, Matt Ratto. And we... Um, we worked on putting together a proposal for an Internet of Things prototyping lab. And uh, Professor Ratto was doing work with open source uh, and open hardware technologies like 3D printing and the Arduino and other similar technologies. And that kind of inspired me to get back to my engineering. And so out of that, uh, I started working on various projects in that space in sort of the open hardware maker space and and then Get Your Bot On was born. Cool. Very neat. So did that come from, um, like you said, the inspiration was that particular um, um, application that you had at the University of Toronto. Was Did you have sort of a long time urge to work on a particular problem that Get Your Bot On is now solving? Or was it just sort of out of this experience, you remembered what engineering was like and wanted to get back to it? Like, how did you get from from working on that lab and, and recognizing that engineering was something that you wanted to get back to, to get your bot on specifically. Sure. So, so when I worked with in the internet of things lab, um, I mean a lot, the technology I think is, is pretty much the same as it, as it really always has been. I don't think there are any great leaps in terms of the, the individual technologies like 3d printing or microcontrollers or microprocessors. But what's happened is they've become so much more accessible in the last number of years. Mm -hmm. Um, the communities that have built around, uh, these open source projects that are sharing how they do things. And, and that really opened things up for me. I think at the time that I went through engineering, I mean, I remember we had one of those Lego kits, probably an early version of the Lego Mindstorms kit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, and we're programming on that, but. Uh, I, I don't feel like it was as accessible as these technologies are now. And so, so that was really what inspired me to get back to it. I, I think I've always loved making things. I've always mm-hmm. loved, uh, you know, sort of rolling up my sleeves and getting my hands dirty. Um, but in the engineering context, it wasn't always that easy to do it. And now it's just incredibly easy and, and access to, um, so at the time that we opened the Internet of Things lab, I, I was running a research institution at the University of Toronto. And at the time that we opened that lab, um, sort of RepRap was still the thing. You you, yeah. you bought your RepRap kit, somebody printed parts and sent them to you. People were still hacking together their maker bots. They didn't come nicely packaged. You still had to put them together at the time. 
uh, Arduino was, was available and, and was out. Um, and you could pretty much with, you know, a quick search on the internet, find how to connect to pretty much anything. Raspberry Pi was still, uh, sort of in the new, still, still new and an idea and not readily available yet Mm -hmm. at that time. So, People were talking about the possibilities once you had this really inexpensive single board computer. So, so it was, it was a real time of, of change in, in terms of just access and sharing around those technologies mm-hmm. that I, that, that's really what inspired me. And, and it became apparent. It was really funny because Arduino has been around for quite a while now and it really came out of the arts community, not the engineering community. And it, and it was interesting when the engineers started to get interested in it. Matt had been working with it for years. Some of the other people that, that I was interacting with through this lab through um his lab is called the critical making lab and and this it's a lab that works with technology but but looks at it from a humanities perspective and other artists that were coming through that community and the maker community that had been working with Arduino for a number of years and then all of a sudden the engineers started to notice that there was this <laughs> incredibly powerful platform that they could use that was very financially accessible as well mm-hmm. uh so that so that was a really big eye opener for me that I that I felt like you know maybe as engineers sometimes we feel like that you know the technology is sort of our our domain and and we maybe aren't aware sometimes of what's happening in other uh, communities where ease of use is really important, and yeah. so uh, so that was a real eye opener for me, and 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 I really enjoyed it. Through that community, I met the original co-founder to the hackathon, uh, and we basically in in 2012 we'd found out that there was an, a cloud robotics hackathon that happened in Montreal, and they were looking uh, at possibly expanding. We took a look at it, and we realized you know it would be really neat to just do something really grassroots and accessible in Toronto. So so that's how we started uh, the very first first year in 2012, which I think actually even a, a number yeah. of, of people joined us that mm-hmm. year. I was gonna say you can still see Pete's face on the on the Get Your Bot On website. Yeah, I think yeah. I think you're I think you're in the banner. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Actually, <laughs> people people can go hunt for you if yeah, they exactly. uh, in in the picture. Um, so, what was the original concept? Like, forget. The, like, do you want to maybe talk about what Get Your Bot On was at that point? And mm-hmm. as you said, the technologies progressed and the ease of use has progressed. Maybe what it is now, or what the if it's changed or if you have a different goal now than you did at the beginning. So, I mean, even in 2012, there were a lot of hackathons happening in Toronto. Now it's like there's two, three every weekend. But even at that time, there was, you know, there would be a number of them within a year. Many of them were were either around uh, software and programming or mobile apps. Um, and a few of them were around the startup community and building like a business pitch in a weekend. Mm, yeah. But there weren't very many opportunities to build something physical and so for for us that very first year Nick Stedman and I you know we, we chatted about it Nick is is a roboticist and an artist himself um, and that first year we chatted about it and thought you know wouldn't it be cool to get people together and actually get them to build something uh, in 2012 not everybody had an Arduino things have changed immensely now we you know when we invite people pretty much everybody at least has an Arduino if not a Raspberry Pi of their own they've mm. tinkered a little bit with it yeah. in 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 2012 they didn't necessarily have those tools so giving people a kit bringing people together from different communities from the artist community from the engineering community and and then also from different domains as well having them actually build something in a weekend 
was was what we were really interested in. So the physical part of actually building the interdisciplinarity and that sort of concentrated focused weekend that mm. you can go from an idea to perhaps a very primitive, but at least a, a first prototype of what you want to build yeah. in the weekend. That was the one part that sort of appealed to me at the time was that it was an opportunity where you could play around with something that a lot of people were still playing around with at that time and obviously are now where like you said everyone has usually their own arduino or something if they're an engineer or interested in that type of of maker community but everything is there there are machine tools all of the sensors are there all everything you would need to build something is just sitting there and you've got help and coaching and everything is ready you just need to basically spend a couple days putting it together and seeing what you can build so it's even though things are in the Arduino and the Raspberry Pi communities are pretty accessible, they're pretty easy to get started. And like you said, it's it's very reasonably priced. It's still difficult to find where to buy kits and get them shipped to you. And what do I need? And how do I put it together? And there's still a barrier. And that was why the hackathon to me was really cool because it took away that barrier and just lets you play. Precisely. So yeah. we, in that year, especially, uh, that was before anybody was really paying attention. I think we had like a, a bandsaw and a drill press even yeah. at that particular <laughs> event. <laughs> that, that gets harder and harder to do depending on who's hosting the event. But, uh, you need we longer had, and longer, uh, release of forms before you can get pre- into the room. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. That's, and that's always going to be a challenge. So, mm-hmm. and also at that time, there were only a few maker spaces. Now the, the maker space has also just exploded in the, yeah. in the greater Toronto area. So, not everybody had access to even, you know, basic machine tools. So providing that and, and, you know, we had, we had people there that had, you know, never worked with electronics before. They had never programmed before or they had never touched a drill before or a drill press before. And then we had experienced engineers and we had coaches and mentors mm-hmm. throughout the weekend. And I think for me that that kind of um, access was really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like the, the mentoring and the the training that you get is is good, even if you are experienced. Like I, I went with a master's degree in robotics, but I'd never used Arduino. I never touched one. So that was, I was going to play with an Arduino in a context where you could try to apply it to something. And yeah, like you said, it it scales depending on what your background and what you want to do and what you're experienced with. But everyone at the end is able to do something. I also like uh, one of the, like the rules is that it has to be, has to move, right? That's one of your core things is it has to to do something. And I think that's a really cool requirement. Like it's really easy when you get into that kind of a space and especially under a time crunch to say, okay, I want to solve this problem. How can I do this the most simple way? And usually that is to eliminate moving parts, eliminate, like try to get down to something that's entirely information based, which in is, is its own kind of problem solving in and of itself. But I think like having that rule of something's got to move, something's got to do something physical sort of puts you in a, uh, it, that limitation almost opens up new doors because you're no, you're no longer looking for the simplest solution. You're looking for the way to do something that's actually doing something in, in physical space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From our mechatronics episode, it, it really completes those pillars of like programming electronics and actuation mm-hmm. and mechanical systems. Yeah. 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 Cause it's, yeah, it's it, partially because things that move are in, in some ways they're less predictable. It's harder to say whether what you're going to do in, in, in the physical space is going to work as well as what you're going to do. Usually your software can be a lot more predictable than your hardware when you're trying to build something in, in a couple days. That's it. it software is much when you're programming, there's so many more opportunities. The, 
the system is so much more forgiving, mm-hmm. right? And I and I think once you have to deal with the physical world, that that changes the way you think about how you design, the way you think about how you test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and and I think those are important skills for everyone to have those problem solving skills. Mm-hmm. And to have something like th- there's something to also looking at a problem and realizing like with software, a pure software hack, you can go or hackathon, you can go through thousands of iterations in one weekend where you go and you, you tweak a little thing, you run it, it doesn't work. You tweak a little thing, you run it, it doesn't work. But with hardware, you got to put a lot of thought into your, you're only going to get a half dozen like uh, prototype runs, like prototype cycles through in the weekend. So you have to make real strides between each version that you produce. That's exactly mm-hmm. yes. What are some of the most exciting things you've seen come out of the hackathon at the end? So, um, I mean, we've had, we've had such a range of participants and ideas. And we also, so the first year we didn't have any theme. And in 2014, when we did it, um, we, we had the theme aging at home. And so we saw some interesting, uh, projects in that group mm-hmm. around, um, medication and being able to, um, provide support for somebody staying at home longer by uh, helping them comply with their their medication regime and 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 schedule um, we saw interesting ideas that you might not normally think about as robotics uh, one of the teams so so that year actually we had a partner who was offering a fellowship to work in their lab it's uh, in Toronto rehab there's a, a lab called the intelligent As- assistive systems and technologies lab uh, Alex Mihalis runs that lab and they work around on projects to help um, make the process of staying at home as you age easier. Mm-hmm. And so he offered some fellowships. And so one of the teams that he uh, gave a fellowship to was a group of ninth graders, actually. Oh, wow. wow. In a weekend, you know, they, they were just amazing kids. In a weekend, I think they built three different products. They built like a haptive, haptic watch that would alert you when you needed to take medications and when you needed to like, you know, for your daily routine and that kind of thing, they built an RFID pill dispensing system and they actually showed us, you know, here's, here's sort of like the inventory of this system and, and how you, you might think about using RFID to, to manage when somebody should be taking their pills and stuff. And then the third thing they built was a, um, a video surveillance system that would you know, help somebody watch over their parent if they were at home alone. Wow. Um, wow. And, and nobody could be there to take care of them. I mean, they were, they were, it was all very, you know, early, early, early prototypes, but what these yeah. kids accomplished in a weekend was just phenomenal. Well, it hits on an interesting, an interesting idea in these kinds of hackathons. The other thing you, it's mentioned on your site is the mixing of, mixing with people that you wouldn't normally be working with, you, you say introducing to artists, but in this case, maybe like mixing some ninth graders into all of the groups and say, okay, you got to listen to this kid. He's got some crazy ideas, but yeah, <laughs> like, they, I, it would, it, you'd have to do it in a context where they, they couldn't be sort of like shuffled off to the side and be like, yes, yes, go sit in the corner kind of thing. But if you, like, if you could establish that, that, uh, the interaction between people, especially with people who are are very creative, but maybe not necessarily have the technical technological knowledge to implement a prototype, mm-hmm. this kind of a, and, and introducing mm-hmm. them to mentors, things like that. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting things that could come out of that. In, in fact, that year we had um, Rosalie Wang and and Alex Mihilidis from the IATSO lab mm-hmm. spent the weekend and and sat with teams and helped them build things, and we also had. Um, 
Cosmin Montenot, who's from a, another lab at uh, the University of Toronto, the Technologies for Aging Gracefully Lab. They do more digital media type stuff, but for a similar uh, space for, for the aging community and aging population. And so um, between the three of them, they had spent so much time with all of these teams and shared some of the learnings of their research about some of the challenges around aging at home that the teams were able to benefit from that experience and, mm-hmm. and make that sort of leap forward in terms of their ideas. That's interesting. It sort of ties a little bit into what I was just thinking about, which is like, what do you think the ingredients are to a successful hackathon? Because it's interesting to me that you added the theme. And I'm wondering if that was consciously because there was, you thought that would be lead to more successful projects or more focused projects or like, what are the, what are the elements that, that make a, a real set of successful projects? And not even that, but I guess sort of successful outcomes for the participants where even if they didn't manage to build what they wanted to build. They feel like they accomplished something and it was worthwhile. Yeah. So, I mean, that's uh, something that we've been experimenting with a little bit. So the first year we had no theme and the ideas that came in were really broadly creative. Uh, we had, you know, we, we had artistic robots that created their own paths, like you know, mathematically created their own paths. We had robotic pets. We had, um, drawing robots. We had a really broad set of creative ideas the first year. Uh, the second year when we did it, I mean, it was really um, a, a byproduct of the partnership that we had um, with Alex's lab that we put the theme on it. And then in that year, the projects were perhaps more narrowly focused, but went a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. we had, you know, robotic assistants, we had robotic pill dispensing systems, we had uh, companion robots, those kinds of ideas. So more, more narrow, but, but certainly they went a little bit deeper. And so you know, the third year, last September, we we thought we'd try to broaden it again just to see what happened. And we went with the theme healthy, very broadly healthy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> any kind of healthy. And we had, you know, robots for the environment, for a healthier environment. We had robots for healthier people. We had robots for ergonomics. We had, you know, ro- all wow. kinds of social robots. We had robots for, we, we had again, some ideas around robots for aging at home. Uh, we had, we had robots that played games. Mm. Like we had, we actually had a robot built by this, this crazy family, uh, the Zangs <laughs> that, you know, I mean, really like the dad, this is the second time he's joined us and, mm. and he brings all three of his kids with him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and they all work. I've never seen kids work so diligently. They're the first ones in and the last ones out of, of the hackathon and, and worked like from, from morning to night on these robots. And, and the first year they did a companion robot. And last year they did actually a, a robot that would play AlphaGo, uh, would play Go. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. So neat. very, very interesting. They were, they were doing some image recognition work and, and some robot motion work. So, um, yeah, so we get, we get all kinds of, of ideas depending on how we, you know, position the theme and, and the concept that we're looking for. Um, and, and I mean, I don't know what's in terms of more or less successful. I think it's just going to depend on, mm-hmm. you know, what, what we're trying to achieve in any particular year. Two years ago, we had the fellowships last year. You know, we wanted to go a little bit more broadly and see what came in, in so, terms of ideas. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems like the, like the level of creativity and the level, like the, the speed at which you get through the initial stages of like coming up with a concept and that is, is astounding compared mm-hmm. to like corporate development or like product development. And 
do you, do you think there's like some key lessons that like corporate, like either corporate environments or like research location could take out of this kind of an environment, this kind of uh, hackathon mentality that could be applied to produ- producing better products, solving problems better? I think corporations are already taking notice and mm-hmm. you'll see many of them are doing their own types of hackathons, mm-hmm. uh, often internal, often looking at different, either new, new customer groups and how do you, how do you make products for new customer groups or new lines of business or looking at their existing infrastructure or products and seeing what, what new ideas come to build on top of those. So companies are already paying attention to the hackathon model mm-hmm. and using that model as, as a means of innovation. Um, I think, I mean, let, let's be honest, what you can build in a weekend is, is very primitive and I yeah. wouldn't necessarily call it product development. I'd mm-hmm. call it really early idea exploration. Yeah. And, and there's sort of another element to this, the idea and, and, you know, I think as engineers, we sort of take this for granted, but you remember the capstone projects that we used to do yeah. in school and the design projects and how probably like a few nights before everybody's panicking and you're like <laughs> focused and trying to actually build something. So this is something we probably know intuitively. We've just forgotten since we've left school about mm. how valuable that concentrated time of working together can be. You know, there is something to be said for using that model uh, and being able to apply it to your innovation processes. Yeah. No, I, I've been in, in situations with, with companies where they sort of like sit down and like, you're going to sit down and brainstorm in air quotes. Mm-hmm. And there's something sort of that seems so like stale about the corporate brainstorm session idea, but the versus like sitting down, here's a pile of parts and it's like, make something. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much like come up with the idea and then make the parts fit the idea as much as like, Hey, what can we do with this? What kind of crazy thing can we do? And then go from there back to now, what are we going to, where are we going to apply those ideas? There, there's some sort of like secret sauce to the hackathon, like spa- the mentality that uh, is missing from a lot of the corporate things that I've seen applied. Sure. I, I think too, until you actually have to make something and, and especially have to make something physical, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of things that you haven't necessarily worked out. You know, that there's, there's something to be said for having to make concrete your idea mm-hmm. and that through that design process and preferably a collaborative design process, you start to uh, you start to understand what are the constraints that I'm really working with here. You start to really internalize that, and that that was something. And and I mentioned very early on the work of the lab and the critical making work uh, that happens at the university. So it's sort of this idea of of making concrete, and and so when you're designing conceptually. A lot is lost in that conceptual, abstract discussion of the idea until mm-hmm. you have to actually make it concrete mm-hmm. and figure out where the where the boundaries are, where the constraints are, and actually deal with those. That's mm-hmm. when that's when you really start to work out what does that really mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you mentioned that um, there you have a whole group range of people from artists, engineers, and I was wondering if you noticed. Any sort of difference in the process of how these different types of people approach these challenges? So I know for me, when I started working with artists more, um, I didn't really understand the artist's process, mm-hmm. or, you know, in particular process-based artists that, that take a concept and work it through a series of iterations to break it down and figure it out. So for, as an engineer, prototyping is for product feature and functional testing. You yeah. know, we, we keep doing these iterations to test product features and functions of what we're, you know, what our ultimate goal is. 
And what was really interesting for me is that artists do that kind of iterative prototyping, but they do it for conceptual exploration. And Mm. they're much more willing to go down a path knowing that they may have to abandon at the end than we are as engineers. You know, as engineers, we really want every step in the cycle to be productive. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes lots is lost when you're not willing to go down a path, even though you know it may not be successful. To be able to to risk that and take that chance, you might learn something along the way that's useful in another direction. And that was really interesting to me as I started working with artists that their iterative processes were more about conceptual exploration than they were about functional exploration. And that's been a big learning for me um, in terms of the work that I do, in terms of some of the teaching that I do is Mm -hmm. to be willing to take that those paths. Um, so that's certainly one difference. The interdisciplinarity when you're bringing together, you know, in the last two hackathons, uh, a lot more sort of in the health space, well, with engineers bringing those two disciplines together and sort of the language barriers and the way you discuss things and the way you conceptualize things mm-hmm. can be different. And so having a physical project in front of you makes that easier sometimes. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. It's interesting because uh, I was part of a, a- not really a brainstorming session at one point, but a sort of a strategic session for thinking about how to change engineering. And one of the examples they used for the process they were trying to follow was this video that I will try to find of Picasso painting. And it's like a time lapse of him painting. And he basically sketches a general idea of what he wants and works on a particular detail for quite a long time to get it to look exactly right. And then covers it up and does something totally different. And then by the end, after he's covered things and covered things and changed things and modified things, it's a totally different painting than it was at the beginning. And uh, it's interesting that that sort of concept of you just keep adding and adding and changing and feel free to just totally throw it out and start again is a very artistic approach. But nowadays with CAD tools and 3D modeling and simulations and stuff with engineering, it's more kind of figure out what the design is before you build. And then when you actually build it, it's you're like you said, you're more attached to it because you've put energy into it. You've put a process into it that you don't, you're more sort of reluctant to throw out and start again or totally change your approach at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also interesting because this is the, the, the two day hackathon as a, as a, like a, a life cycle. If you keep, as long as you're keeping your costs down, you can start to get into more of a, a, a natural, like evolutionary concept as well. Cause you can start making a whole bunch of prototypes, be like, okay, this worked, this part of this part worked, this part of this worked. We can sort of jam them together and try to come up with something that is the best of both. Knowing that you could build, you build each one knowing that neither of them is going to work really all that well, but being okay with that because it's going to tell you something about how the real world works that you can't, you don't have time to simulate. Like simulations are great if you have time to build perfect models, but in this case, it's kind of, it's almost better to build it and see, and it's okay if it doesn't work, which yeah. is, a, it is, it's a, it's a mentality we don't, we don't, uh, we don't take too very easily as engineers. Mm-hmm. No. Well, once you leave school, the opportunities to do that are, are, are very limited, you know, and, and I think that, that was what our learning process was as kids, was trying something sometimes completely, you know, out there, complete, maybe, maybe totally useless, maybe, maybe even, you know, really didn't make any sense, but you just tried it anyways. And you allowed yourself that opportunity to do something that didn't make sense. And I think sometimes by always having, uh, this idea of, of needing to make incremental progress all the time, we miss that opportunity to, to try try these crazy far out ideas mm-hmm. to find, find uh global maxima instead of just local maxima <laughs> mm-hmm. as you we were talking about the genetic algorithms one. Yeah. And it's an interesting 
challenge to try to take that, like you were saying, and, and, and apply at least the same types of approaches to corporate environments because they're there's again, there's so much inertia and so much obligation to like, you have to have a good design because it has to get built and has to get out the door that you don't have that opportunity to just kind of throw things together and hack at stuff and see if what you can build and well, yeah, I mean, try yeah. again and again to piece something together. Even like, even the going back to like the capstone projects and that there's, there's all the, you have all the pressure bearing down on you. If you got to end up with something that's good enough to like make you pass, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. there isn't like the sense of just sitting down and tinkering for a while to see what you end up with. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's, it's a very different mentality. Mentality. And as you say, even in corporate environments, it doesn't matter how much your boss says, it doesn't matter if you fail. You're going to think in the back of your head, <laughs> does it really not matter if I fail? I don't know. It's at least embarrassing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it, well, it's, but that's, it, you hit a really good point, which is we find the, like a failure of a, of a, a wild prototype embarrassing, despite the fact that we knew that failure was almost inevitable. Yeah. And so you don't go down that road because you know, it's going to be embarrassing if, and when it doesn't work. And so the, that, that mentality needs to change Mm -hmm. yeah it gets back to almost sort of what gord was talking about where he he sees problems and just takes them on because they're all around him and he has the opportunity in his garage to try to build things to solve those problems without any kind of need to satisfy anything but his own desire to make stuff that he thinks will work Mm -hmm. well and that's i think that's part of what's interesting is that the hackathon takes the I, I, I like a sense of freedom of like, okay, I'm just going to do this cause I can and brings it into a communal space where you, that's really like, I, I could see at home trying to build something and having it fail and not really mind, but doing it in a community space where people are watching and people are wor- and working with people. Uh, I would find that a lot harder to like to sign up for than being in my basement and building a robot yeah. that falls over. It's like mm-hmm. a, it's like a hobbyist incubator. <laughs> you have you have all the tools around you and all the expertise around you, but you also have an obligation. It's not just like you're starting a company in your garage. All of a sudden, there's a buy-in almost. Well, and that's also the, the, I think the other thing that's interesting is I mean, you, it sounds like the, the get your bot on has there. There's a motivation for people to get involved beyond sometimes not beyond just tinkering, but in a lot of ways, there it's giving you a reason to to just do this for its own sake. To get, like, there's something at home, you'd be like, okay, well, I know I could do any number of things at home with an Arduino, but I don't really have the motivation to sit down and do it unless I'm trying to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And everything I, everything you do tinkering, there's this idea in the back of your head, at least for me as an engineer, that it always has to be the precursor to something bigger. I gotta be like, I have to be trying to invent like something that's gonna make me a million dollars. I can't just be like plugging an Arduino into a motor because it's cool. And so it's the, the hackathon frame gives you a reason to do something, even though I, I'm, I'm not going to, like, if I, I might build a robot that plays Go. I'm never going to sell a robot that plays Go. <laughs> and I probably wouldn't, like, I have no use for it at home. I'm not going to build it. But in this setting, it gives you a whole different set of values, a whole different set of, uh, like, how important things mm-hmm. are. Hmm. What's, uh, what's next for you or for, um, get your bot on. Like, what do you, what do you want to do in the future? So, so we've actually been quite busy the last number of months. The last actual hackathon was September of 2015. Um, and since then we've done a few workshops. We get a lot of requests for workshops, both for kids and for adults. So we did uh, one with the Markham Public Libraries last fall around yes. the Raspberry Pi using Scratch, building a robot. Um, and we just did one last month with Pi Ladies Toronto and Women Who Code Toronto mm. uh, using the Raspberry Pi and python just hooking it up with some motors and some some um some sensors 
So we get a lot of requests to do those kinds of workshops and we would probably do, you know, some more of that in particular in the adult space. And we think there's a real opportunity through these community-based organizations to partner and, and bring sort of the physical side to that. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, we're not experts in, in programming. Um, but we've got mentors that come and help us with that. And we also have mentors that come and help us with the physical, the motors, the sensors. Um, so we, so we'll do more of that, uh, the adult space because people just want to try, you know, I mean, they they just want an opportunity to try something that they wouldn't normally have access to the guidance uh, to do on their own, especially if they're out of school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we also have been doing, uh, have been just ramping up on some monthly meetups. We just had one last week with Erin Kennedy, Robot Girl. Um, Erin is working on this uh, shoreline cleaning robot. So she's Mm. looking for collaborators. She's looking for collaborators, and so we um, we had a meetup last week where she got to uh, talk a little bit about the robot, and she's doing some field tests, so she was engaging some of our community to, to work with her on that open source project. Hmm. Um, and we'll do more of those kinds of monthly meetups. People really want sort of the mix of talking about robotics and some of the hands-on stuff, so mm-hmm. probably the next number of months we'll be working on the meetup stuff, and um, one of the things that we did find – the last time uh, we we did the workshops or the the hackathon, people come and some of them come completely cold, so they can't really make the most of everything that's there because yeah. they just they just get up and running in one aspect, be mm-hmm. it programming or the hardware or the electronics. So what we want to do is is ease people into it a little bit more slowly and get and let them hit the ground running when they come to one of those events. So we we still haven't decided whether or not we'll do a hackathon by the end of this year. But even if we do uh, do one, then we'll probably do some hands on workshops at our meetup events so that people can get up to speed and at least make the most of the tools that are there if they've never seen them before. Mm-hmm. They'll have experienced something prior and that they'll be ready to go when they get there. Hmm. Are there aspects of, uh, I guess, robotics, which is sort of your focus that, uh, that you want to be able to tackle beyond just sort of using Raspberry Pis and stuff like that, that maybe is more tricky? Like, is there, is there a need for people to learn how to do machining or 3D CAD or stuff like that as well mm-hmm. as a more sort of, I guess it's a little bit more ambitious than maybe some of the maker aspects of, but still like there's, there's a lot of, meet there of meetups and training sessions and hackathons that you could do. Absolutely. And, and so the community itself is diverse and there are people with the, with sort of, you know, deep skills in each of these areas and they, and many of them are more than happy to share those skills. And so we would like to go a little Mm -hmm. bit deeper in, in all of these areas. And I think some of the, you know, just sort of looking ahead and looking forward, there's some real challenges in robotics around data and data collection and, and, sort of that that whole area of, of information and data, the whole area of, of machine learning, artificial intelligence, and, and how you incorporate that. Um, in addition to all of the 3D modeling and 3D printing and multi-material printing, and the physical aspects of, of the robots themselves that we can we can get into. And, I, and it's just a question of you know, the team being able to sit down and, and organize all, of, all yeah. of those opportunities. But we certainly do want to go a little bit deeper in each of those areas. Mm. Are there uh, like particular things sort of as a, a kind of a lessons learned that 
people who are getting into making and getting into building things would should look out for i asked gord the same question like what resources or particular technologies or things like raspberry pi or arduino that is there something you've seen that's been particularly fruitful in your hackathon something or like some material that people use or anything that's really cool that surprised you oh goodness i mean there's there's so much so much available Mm -hmm. for me so so the other thing that's been happening the last number of years. There's a, there's a lot of organizations starting up looking at this space and trying to build tools and, and learning kits and that kind of thing. And so we, you know, for us, we really sort of want to start at the basics. And, and so, I mean, there, there are some amazing, amazing, uh, kits and prepackaged tools with, with their own visual programming languages even and and all kinds of of innovation coming uh down the pipeline in that's going to be very accessible and that already is very accessible and so i, I think you know just to be able from our perspective to be that entry point to say, okay, now go to an electronics shop or a surplus shop. And, and, you know, this is what a resistor looks like. This is Mm -hmm. what a motor looks like. And this is the difference between a DC motor and a servo motor. And, you know, here's, here's what a motor driver looks like. And here, you know, here's how you think about these different components coming together so that that's not so daunting. And then I think, um, you know, if people do want to um, get into some of these uh, more abstracted or prepackaged systems. At least they have that kind of grounding to yeah. understand what's going on behind the scenes. And so, so I always encourage parents to start there, to start with just an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi and learn how to plug things in. I mean, those those systems too, but they they are just more accessible because of the communities around them and people have built stuff mm. than some of the other more abstracted systems are. Uh, at this point, but then graduate to some of the more abstract mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, think, but, especially the, the, the popular systems, they're the, the things for which there are tutorials that you can find online. If you want like yeah. you, you search for Arduino and motor, you'll find somebody who can tell you how to put a motor into an <laughs> yeah. Arduino kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The examples are huge. I mean, at the hackathon, that was what we used predominantly was we needed to do like we had all these sensors we wanted to use. So you look at an example of this sensor and you look at this example, this example, this example. And for each one, there's a code sample. For each code sample, you just modify it slightly so that it works for you. And um, that forms the basis. And then sort of, again, like, like Gord's been doing, you go down a rabbit hole specific to what you want to build. Yeah. And you can get really deep and dark into that specific aspect and then go and try something else and... Yeah, once yeah. once once your once your Arduino project gets you talking about Laplace transfers, you know you're into a, yeah. you're down a rabbit hole. Yeah, or like uh, he was asking us on on our Facebook page last week how to print your own PCBs. And yeah, stuff how do like you get that. started in PCBs? That's a big question. <laughs> you're, you're you're going down an interesting road there. Have fun. Yeah, I, I think he'll have a great time with it. But it's good. It's yeah. It's a, it's a wide open <laughs> plane once you get out that door. <laughs> But, but totally accessible. You oh, know? Yeah. I mean, if you really oh, yeah. want to do it, it's not. I've I haven't been an engineer in you know in forever, but but even I've learned how to lay out a PCB and mm-hmm. admittedly mm-hmm. get it printed by you know somewhere else. But yeah. but it's not it's well, not I, impossible. Think, yeah, things like that. They, you got you got to leave some things to the when you're unless you're going to be like Pete and have a crock pot full yeah. of acid in high it's school, like, like melting tank, off. Yeah. That's just that just sounded terrible. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's, especially in those those sort of things are so, so much more accessible now as well as as you start getting like crowds of people doing small projects and it's worth it's worth having companies that'll make small pcbs runs of two pcbs things like that mm-hmm. it's funny the the crockpot example reminds me of uh photography where it used to be like you had to have your own dark room and you had to have your, all of your own like lots of equipment and processes and stuff and then it just became you'd send off your film and then now it's just everything's digital but there's a whole other set of tools you need like photoshop and stuff like that but it is mm-hmm. more accessible yeah eventually for sure 
And the same thing like years ago without Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and everything, this community, you had to know how to do everything yourself. And now there's a lot of tools to do it for you, but you well, it, find it, it'll get you to, yeah, it'll get you three of the steps in and then yeah. it takes you to where you know what questions you want to ask about what you want to learn. I think that, mm. that's one of the, I think that's probably the, one of the biggest things that's come out of this kind of the hackathon mentality is you come out of it with, oh, that was cool. I want to learn more about this so that I could do this better next time or I could go this different direction next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Cool. Shall we wrap up with a, with a fun fact? Sure. Are we, yeah. gonna, are we at that time? Yeah. Does that sound good? Okay. Oh, yes. All right. So the right and left hand rule reminded me of, uh, do you know why left handed people are called South Paws? No, but I didn't know that. I had no idea why. You you, you did know that people... Yes. Okay, yes. So left-handed people colloquially are often referred to as Southpaws. And the reason that they are referred that way is that um, Major League Baseball stadiums are set up so that the batter is always facing to the east. So that when you play an afternoon game, the sun is not in his eyes, which means that the pitcher is facing west, and so his left hand is south. And so when you're, if you had a pitcher that pitched with his left hand, he was pitching from the south. He was a southpaw. Normally, huh. normally it was your north hand, your right hand. Yeah. But it has to do with the orientation of the baseball diamonds and the fact that they wanted the sun in the pitcher's eyes rather than the batter's eyes when you played baseball in the afternoon. That's neat. That is yeah. neat. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's usually where lots of most of these facts. Yeah. Like, huh, I'm going to have to file that away for later. Yeah. That's how I pick up all of these facts. All right. So, uh, if people want to get a hold of us and, Ask yeah. us questions or comment on things they've heard. They can find us at facebook.com slash how do you eng and Twitter slash how do you eng and iTunes mm-hmm. yep. and feedback at how do you dot engineer. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we still have Pinterest. We still don't do much with Pinterest, but yeah. you can go look there. Yep. Oh, and starting to today, you can find us on Geek Life Radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's our first episode that's yeah. going to be on, on the internet radio broadcasting at six o'clock central on what date? Uh, today. Yeah, but. This isn't coming out for another like week. So oh, what um, date is it today? On Mondays, maybe? Not sure. I don't know. We're not really sure how that works yet, but it's at six o'clock. We should probably double check <laughs> that. We'll, we'll, we'll double check and we'll put yeah. a tweet, we'll put a tweet out about it or something. Yeah. yeah. And Adriana, you have lots of social media. You're welcome yeah, to We do. Mention. So our website is getyourbotton.com and, uh, we're most active, I think, on Twitter at getyourbotton. We're also on Facebook and, and LinkedIn. So people can connect with us through all of those and join our meetup. If you're in the greater Toronto area, come in and come to one of our our meetings yeah cool it's it's great it's a great time sounds awesome there's mac and cheese and beer that's all you need is it at least the one i went to <laughs> oh the the hackathon yeah. we do feed people who yeah. come to the hackathons we have snacks at our meetups yeah. but we do feed people when they come to our hackathons apparently that's i was gonna a, say that's don't, a big don't deal apparently. <laughs> <laughs> i've gone and done like more ridiculous things just for a free meal so <laughs> Awesome. Great. Thank you very much, Adriana. It was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. This was brought to you by Gwanzer. Thanks, Gwanzer.